Welcome to the It's Become a Whole Thing podcast with me, your host, Emily Rose, where we take a subversive look at all the celebrity gossip you want and some you never knew you needed. We'll take a deep dive into the hidden meanings of what's really going on in the world of pop culture, because here we contain multitudes and read between the lines. Join me. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the It's Become a Whole Thing podcast. I'm your host, Emily Rose. How is everyone? How's your week? Is the week just starting? How are we feeling about that? Are we having a hangover from Sunday scaries? Are we excited? What's the vibe out there? I was thinking after last week's episode about the whole world of influencers and feeling like I'm somewhat on both sides of everything at the moment where I'm very much still a spectator, but I'm also sort of a participant or even an influencer myself uh, by some people's definition. And, you know, when you hear influencers being like, there's a lot of exciting things coming up that I can't wait to tell you about, but I can't tell you at the moment. And it's kind of annoying. And you're like, well, what is it? Just either tell me or not. I I hate to say it, but I I get it. And I've become that. I'm not (laughs) for so many things, but there are these big things in the works for me right now. And I can't tell you guys at the moment, but I probably, hopefully will be able to soon. If you've been listening to this for a little bit now, you've been along for the journey and you're you're coming along with me. If my career in this sphere was a house, you're watching the foundation being poured, you're watching the walls being built, you're what you're watching the entire thing being constructed from the ground up. It, it really is in those beginning stages, which is equally exciting and terrifying. So I I'm very open about struggles and setbacks and all that that motivated me to start this all in the first place to start making content if any of you were interested in listening to Saturday's bonus Mother's Day episode you'll know in a lot more detail why I started this but I I know that that type of stuff isn't for everyone and fair enough we're here for generally lightness pop culture that sort of thing but I also want to tell you about the exciting things that are happening. And I also want to tell you about the exciting things that are happening. Uh, not to be boastful, but I want to take you along for the whole journey. So all I'll say is that I'm feeling good. I'm feeling good about the role that I'm in as this freelancer, content creator, whatever you, you'd call me. And it's also the fact that up until about two weeks ago where I live, it was uh, snowing. There was a snowstorm. And now it's hot and shorts weather. So... Thank God I can synthesize vitamin D. If someone asked in a Q&A how they can help regulate their mood, and I was like, well, it, if you figure it out, let me know because I have a couple of months of cold, cloudy weather and I forget the sun even exists. And so now it's out and it, it's sort of sorting my soul back out. So that's where I'm at. I have an, an episode that I'm so excited about. It's an episode that I recorded with Dalma of the TikTok account, I Am Dalma. You know, speaking of things taking off, I, I interviewed her a couple of weeks ago or maybe about a month ago. And even just in that short time, I've seen her have articles written about her and be featured in all these important business publications. And it's so cool to see she's an expert in the world of Silicon Valley business and particularly celebrity businesses, particularly celebrity businesses and beauty brands, their makeup lines, all of that, she gets into the very fine details of how these things run. And 
if you're even remotely interested in celebrity gossip, you get inundated with their businesses, right? You you see it everywhere. And it, it seems like they all have a business and they seem to especially all have a beauty brand or a makeup brand. And it wasn't always that way. Celebrities have always done product placements or had their own lines of whatever products. But now it seems that every person with a blue check mark has a beauty brand. And I've been wanting to know, how does that happen? How, how does that happen? And why have they decided that? Also, what makes them succeed and what makes them fail? You have all these people with so much money, so many resources. So what's the difference between the ones that pop up? And we all seem to collectively see through right away. They seem just like a cheap cash grab versus your billion dollar companies, your Fenty Beauty, your Skims, your... Uh, at one point, Kylie Cosmetics before Forbes had to retract their statement that she was a billionaire, but that's a whole other story. So I got to ask Dalma all of these questions and I'm so excited for this. So let's get right into it. Without further ado, here's today's episode. Okay. And we're back with Dalma, TikTok creator, entrepreneur. If you follow the world of pop culture, you inevitably get roped into the world of celebrity business because they all mm-hmm. seem to have one. Yeah, so true. Before we get into today's topics, how did you get started in this whole world? Yeah, it's funny when I meet people through TikTok, they'll be like, so like, why are you doing this? What made you start doing this? But my backstory is that I started my career at Google helping small and medium businesses with paid advertising. I wasn't there super long because I realized I'm much more creative and entrepreneurial than you should be if you're going to be in a corporate environment. Then I left and did different marketing stints as a freelancer for B2B SaaS startups in San Francisco, basically. So pretty technical startups. And I really enjoyed it. I love being in the startup world. I love being in Silicon Valley. It's not necessarily that I'm a big tech nerd. I still need to like learn about Web3 and NFTs, but I do love love being in environments where people are ambitious and creative and building interesting things and solving big problems and things are moving fast because I'm an impatient person. So I like that. I like that environment and I like that aspect of the culture in Silicon Valley. So I was there for a while. And then in 2017, I started my first business. It was a fragrance retailer online called Potion. And I had been kind of wanting to start a consumer facing brand since I interned at an agency called Red Antler, which is a startup branding agency when I was in undergrad, but I didn't want to start something for the sake of it. I think these days there's so much glamorization of entrepreneurship, which we can kind of put a pin in because that's going to be (laughs) important for our conversation later on. But there's such a, even a fetishization, I would say, of entrepreneurship. So I think a lot of people start businesses and startups without necessarily putting thought into, does this need to exist? And I didn't want to do that. So I was kind of waiting to see if inspiration would strike, if I would find an interesting business that felt compelling to me, personally aligned for me, but also something that was solving a problem in the market. So what I noticed was a lot of products were shifting to clean and transparent and non-toxic, especially in personal care and beauty. But it was still hard for people like my mom, who's a little bit more health conscious. She's had different chronic health conditions. For people like my mom who love fragrance, but also want clean ingredients to navigate the world of fragrance. So that's what I realized. And I found a business partner, sort of a clean beauty micro influencer to help partner with me, gave her some equity. We got it off the ground, got the right brands on board. And so that was my first business. I ran it for two years. It was mostly me because she stepped back after helping me launch it. And I was just wearing a lot of the hats. I started it with probably $10,000 of capital of my 
own savings, not very much money at all, uh, learning everything as I went and hauling boxes of perfume with me from apartment to apartment when I would move. And at the time I had spent four and a half years in San Francisco and I wanted to kind of reset my life and move down to LA where there's more consumer brand activity. There are more retail brands and whatnot and more beauty brands, certainly. So I moved down here. I drove, I, I put all these boxes of fragrance in the back of my little Prius and drove down to LA <laughs> and I started a, a life here and I didn't know a lot of people here. So I wanted to connect with other women who were also in the e-commerce or beauty or retail spaces. And I couldn't find a community of women who were specifically e-commerce founders. A lot of the groups I found were e-commerce groups with, I like to call them uh, e-commerce bros who were yelling about Amazon FBA and, and who were just trying to like arbitrage products and turn a quick profit. And that's kind of like the Gary V rule of business. Exactly. I don't, <laughs> no yeah, offense yeah. if you love Gary V, but it's kind of that like yelling at you. You're like, wait, Exactly. At the 4 a.m. <laughs> That's so funny. I, yeah, I, I talk about Gary Vee as sort of like the exemplification of that. But yeah, that didn't resonate with me. And so I wanted to start a community of like-minded women. So I started that community first offline in LA and then online and, and just kept growing it. And that was my side project that I was doing totally for free, not thinking it would turn into a business. But at some point that started to gain more traction because I was bringing in experts, guest speakers to teach workshops and courses for that, to make it really valuable for the community. And then my community members were like, you should start charging for this. You're doing way too much free work. And I was like, if you're saying that, that must mean something. So I'm going to do that. And then at the same time, Potion wasn't going anywhere. So I decided to close down that business and reorient towards what I eventually named Make Lane. Make Lane is my business, my quote unquote day job. And so I did that. I've been doing that since mid 2019. And then a few months ago, I decided to start posting on TikTok on a whim. I just wanted to get to know the platform. I live in a house with three other female founders, incidentally, and one of them was pretty active on TikTok and I was inspired by her. So I started posting and a few weeks into it, instead of doing trends that I was bad at anyway, I decided to talk about business, which is what I, I'm actually excited about. And it pretty much immediately went viral, probably because it was about the Kardashians. So since then, I've just been kind of on that beat. And now it's turned into something that takes up a lot of my time, but it's also led to interesting opportunities and advising and consulting. So you know, it's so funny because we've come from very different places, but I resonate with so many different parts of your story. So I've started businesses and had successes and fallen on my face before, but, and also poured myself in giving out way too much free labor, which I think that can happen to any entrepreneur, but especially as women that like giving, giving rather than like going in so overly confident, which see a lot of the men have no problem with um, who dominate this field for now. But I loved what you said about how there's a fetishization of entrepreneurship. It's so true. I often think about how there's somewhat of a millennial preoccupation with turning your passion into a business. Mm -hmm. And it's like, even right now, actually, I, and I'm turning, it's become a whole thing into business, like with a bunch of different little income streams. But at the same time, I'm very much aware of, there's a quote with entrepreneurship, you get to give up your nine to five for the freedom to work 80 hours a week. <laughs> I'm, I'm going into it knowing that it is this weird thing where it's like, you need to go follow your passion right now. And it's like, actually, for a lot of people, passion can just look like working for someone else and having the freedom of being free on the weekends and not having their phone ringing and like checking their emails at 11 o'clock at night. That's so true. Yeah. We don't need to monetize every single passion ever. Yeah. Hashtag capitalism. <laughs> yeah. Yep. <laughs> and funny enough, like you, I started posting not that long ago on a whim and because of the Kardashians went viral, but it's <laughs> so funny how that happened. Yeah. I mean, what's cool about your account is that you're taking the Kardashians, which is like kind of this use of universal fascination, whether you love them, hate them, whatever. And you're taking these topics 
and using them to teach people about business. Giving people that access is what breaks down the mystique around it and what helps to like slowly eliminate this barrier of knowledge and wealth. Yeah. TikTok is a really great platform for that. And you really hit the nail on the head. For me, I like to call these celebrity brand videos that I do a Trojan horse because I use sort of celebrity as the vehicle to teach these broader concepts about business and to make people feel, even if you're a consumer, even if you are not an entrepreneur, have no aspirations to start a company, that's fine. But I believe that we as citizens in a capital society should have more fluency and literacy in business. It's only going to make us feel more empowered. And we're being marketed all these different products all the time, everywhere we turn, whether we're looking at a screen or walking about in the streets. And so why not just develop and deepen our fluency in business? So that's something I feel really passionately about. You're using skims as the gateway drug to <laughs> make people <laughs> yes. financially literate. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Love it. It works. Yeah. yeah. Speaking of celebrity brands, I want to get into it. What do you think makes a celebrity brand successful? You take these people, they have infinite resources, infinite wealth. For those of us who've had to like bootstrap your businesses, extra hundred thousand dollars change my life, my business, but for them, they have that. And yet we see so many failures and very few Fenty Beauty, very few skims, very few Jessica Simpson boom lines. What are your Mm -hmm. thoughts on that? I spent a lot of time thinking about this. And recently I created a rubric for myself to really fully articulate my framework for how I think about this. So I love that you're asking this. So I agree. It's surprising because you would think often the thing that's holding you back as an entrepreneur from you know, crazy success is either money or connections, but actually a lot of these celebrities have both of those things and they still oftentimes fail and they may not fail sort of like immediately out of the gate. They may generate a few sales or quite a bit of revenue in the beginning because they have that fan base who wants to buy whatever they sell, but that's not enough to sustain a business and ultimately to scale a company. And so a lot of them don't last. And so in, in a way that's failure by their standards. So why is that? I think when it comes to what differentiates a successful celebrity brand, one that has longevity and brand loyalty from one that does not, I would say it's a few things. You need to have, I would say a few things go into the brand loyalty that people feel for you and your brand and your products. And then that is one of the elements of the success of the company. So I'll break it down. What goes into brand loyalty? I think it's authenticity. I think it's the strength of your own star power. So certain celebrities are kind of rising. And so I think if Zendaya were to start a brand, I think people would be less skeptical about it because they just love her so much versus recently Scarlett Johansson announced her skincare line. And there's so much skepticism immediately out of the gate. And uh, that I think is a testament to where their personal brands are at. One is a little bit more established and doesn't have much of a connection directly with followers. Whereas the other one is a rising star and a bit more kind of tapped into a younger audience. So that kind of thing makes a difference. And then there are things like quality of product matters for a lot and people overlook that. And if you're a celebrity, you can probably create better quality besides having access to the kinds of, for example, contract manufacturers in the beauty industry that can create good quality products for you you can command lower prices per product because you can place bigger orders. So that's kind of getting into the nitty gritty, but no, but that, that matters. That does matter. Yeah. Yeah. No, most people aren't able to create that. They can still overlook that and get greedy or their teams can get greedy and be like, no, no, charge more, you know, make it for less. But it takes one, all it takes is one viral TikTok video of some girl like taking her blush apart and it's broken for that to go viral, for that to really make a dent in the brand, especially if it's newer. 
Totally. Yeah. So is quality there? Is the value there, right? Even if it's good quality, does it feel like a value for the consumers relative to the price? Those things matter. And then innovation, is it doing something new and interesting or is it another? Recently, we've been seeing a lot of brands emerge that are saying we're clean, but also clinical. We're clean, but also science back. There are so many brands that are saying the exact same thing. So how do you actually differentiate? So I think innovation is important in Fenty Beauty that you named as an example earlier. That is a really good example of a truly innovative brand because they did something that nobody had done at that scale before. So those are some of the things that go into how much consumers are welcoming of your brand and willing to try your products and willing to support you as a brand. And then things like, you know, how much competition is there in the industry? Do you have a really strong team? Or are you just another brand being spun up by one of these celebrity brand incubators who's working on 10 different brands at the same time? Or do you have a devoted team? That's important. Does your team have experience? And then is your market growing? So if you're in in an industry that's declining or stagnating, that's not good. So some of those things come back to just the basics. Yeah. So that's really interesting. And there's three names you brought up. So that I think are really good for illustrating that point. So like Zendaya, she's a true star, like Cap. S star. And I don't think there's a lot of those nowadays. I think she's kind of like the true Gen Z movie star. And so, yeah, I think she could put something out. People also love her personality on screen ops. So that would be a success. And then Scarlett Johansson, you named her and then Rihanna. They're both big stars. There's no disputing that Scarlett Johansson is a huge, huge movie star, but she's not someone that people are like hungry for every interview, anything she says. Rihanna could walk into a room and she says two words, but she says it with just the right tone. And we eat it up because she's incredible. And Fenty, I remember when she rolled it out, she just launched her products and it was something like a blush. And she was like, look, guys, I was wearing this at the Met Gala a month ago and no one knew. And like things like that, that are little subtle details, but she's really thinking about that, the show her passion, whereas Scarlett Johansson, like she's just, she's there, she's doing her thing. Like she's succeeding, but we're not hungry for it. And we've never heard her talk about skincare before until this. Totally. Yeah, I think the biggest misstep there with Scarlett and her team is that there's clearly a lack of authenticity and alignment. And I think people care about that a lot, especially because there's such a saturation in the market of all these celebrity beauty brands. And so we want to see something authentic because otherwise it just feels like we're kind of being duped, you know, like put, people are putting out products that we don't necessarily need and they're marketing it to us. And, and I think as consumers, people feel increasing, I would say before, before it used to be skepticism and now it's almost hostility, especially with these cases like Scarlett Johansson. So that's yeah. becoming really interesting to watch. And so in her case, I think because in interviews and in podcast conversations, she has her talking points, but they seem not refined and it doesn't seem like she has a strong story and it kind of betrays a lack of authenticity underlying this whole project for her. So I think we're sensing that lack of, I like to call it like founder market fit. There's not a lot of founder market fit here. Does she even really care about skincare? Is she just doing this because she wants to make money? She even goes so far as to almost say that. She'll say things like, I started this brand because I was promoting other beauty brands and I wanted to promote my own. It's like, oh great, it's all about you. And you know, what about us? Who cares? That's an that's a more sort of extreme example because I feel like a lot of celebrities are thinking that, but they don't actually say that. They have a little bit more media training, so they don't actually say it that way. But yeah, there's a lack of founder market fit there. There's a lack of clear passion there. And who knows how involved um, she is or with certain celebrities, it just doesn't seem like they're super involved. Whereas with Rihanna, she seems very involved. With Cena Gomez, she seems pretty involved. Um, you know, Jessica Simpson collection, Jessica Simpson seemed really involved in the designs, even though it was sort of like a, a kind of a merchandising empire she seemed pretty involved in in all the different product categories. So I think we want to also see that celebrities are actively involved and they care. And if it doesn't seem that way, then it's just kind of a disappointment. 
Yeah. And I mean, well, it's interesting with Jessica Simpson's brand. I'm not super familiar with the ins and outs, although I did read her book, Open Book by Jessica Simpson, oh, which gosh. she read John Mayer for Phil. She just dragged <laughs> and, and their whole relationship. But she said the best thing that came out of our relationship was I would go to all of his concerts, but the whole time I would be staring at all the women in the audience and looking at like the exact fit of their jeans and like, what are they wearing on a night out? What are the moms in the audience wearing on their night out? Those little details. And that she said each model that came to try on her clothes, she'd be like, how do you feel? Honestly, like, I really want to know. I want you to like wear this and like, tell me how it feels on you. And the models were caught off guard, shows passion. And that's question is how do you measure the passion that celebrities have? Because it seems like it's something that even for people who don't care about business at all, we can tell Rihanna's passionate about Fenty Beauty. We could tell Selena Gomez is, you can just tell Scarlett Johansson's not. What are your thoughts on that? This is a really important question. And I think basically we kind of perceive a few different data points. We're paying attention to how they talk about something, right? Do they seem genuinely excited or does it seem like a set of talking points that we've heard regurgitated by several other founders and celebrities before? Um, so do they sound genuinely excited? Does it seem like there's natural alignment between um, their brand and how they're talking about it and their longstanding interests? So I think um, Halsey is a good example. She has her makeup brand about face and she's been known for creating her own makeup looks for you know red carpet events and and she just seems like a makeup enthusiast and so I do think that there's more alignment there than other celebrity cosmetics brands and so does it seem like it actually relates to what they've been interested in seemingly over the years their track record and also how involved do they seem if it seems like your main focus is elsewhere like on your main career which is totally understandable right if you're an actress or if you're a musician, a musical artist, and you're mainly you're focused on that. No one can fault you for that. But at the same time, it's going to just seem like the brand that you're launching is a side project and you're not super involved in it. And I think that does also kind of factor into our perception of how authentic something is. Yeah, and that's a good point. I mean, people are paying attention. We know if in interviews, you've mentioned little things on the plane, I need this little thing to refresh my face. I feel so much better. Little things like that. When I was growing up, it was like, it really was that a celebrity could slap their name on something and we go out and buy it. And now I just read an article about how Morphe is kind of failing because they rested all their success on doing collabs with YouTubers, like the YouTube makeup gurus. And they're like, Gen Z doesn't care. They just want someone on TikTok who has nice lashes. And they're like, oh yeah, I use this because someone asked them. And they're not really trusting even a YouTube makeup guru anymore. Yeah. That's so true. And speaking of involvement, this is a big topic. How involved do you think celebrities are? Because we all know that these celebrities don't have chemistry degrees. <laughs> we know they didn't get an MBA. So when they say stuff like, I've been working so hard on it, are they showing up to a meeting with a charcuterie board and having ideas pitched to them? And they're like, I like the purple over the pink, you know, or are they actually hands-on? Yeah, I think it really does vary. I think there's a spectrum of they're just presented with all these options and they kind of pick their favorites as far as the shade ranges or the names of the products or the packaging in a really superficial way because they want to put some sort of stamp on the product, but that's the extent to which they want to be involved. I think that is the extreme end of not very involved at all. And then on the other hand, there is what 
I, I perceive Kim's involvement in Skims to be, which is she has a really strong point of view. She's been thinking about what these products need to be like for a really long time. And she genuinely wants to innovate in this category. So she's actively involved in every step of the process, especially with product development. So I think that's the other end of the spectrum. And the fact that Skims is now valued at $3.2 billion is a testament to the strong point of view that she has brought, not just her star power, not just the incredible team she's built, not just the all-star investors that she has involved, but she actually has a point of view. And uh, and I think that is sort of the core of what's animating the brand. Yeah. Again, people can sense that. Like I got in trouble online for saying Kim is a hard worker. I'm not saying I agree with her values or agree with, you know, the image or whatever that she's put forth, but she does work. I do believe that she's a very hard worker. And if there's one thing she's an expert in, it's morphing her body into like teeny tiny little <laughs> shapes. <laughs> and that's what she's been selling us in one way or another her whole career. So like, yeah, she is an expert in this. <laughs> Yeah, I completely agree with that from the product development side. Um, And I also agree that she's a hard worker. I think you hear that a lot, Um, not just her saying I work hard, but a lot lot of people who work with her um, kind of testifying to her her work ethic. So I think think it's funny how people have this sort of weird binary kind of simplified notion of, oh, if you were given a lot, it means you just don't work hard um, after you're given whatever you're given uh, as far as privilege, but you can have both, right? Like both are possible. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It was interesting. I had someone saying like, don't say she's a hard worker because then that's telling young girls that they should look up to her and, and she's a bad role model. I think that's discrediting young girls who are very discerning and can both things can be true. Yeah. It's just, it's just not what we need to hear for her to be like, get off your ass. We know like we're working, yeah. but at the same time, yeah, I think she is a hard worker. And Skims has gotten so far in such a mm-hmm. short amount of time. Yeah, I think so. And I, I have a pet theory that, um, and I don't think it's that niche. I think a lot of people think this, that Kanye sort of entering the uh, sphere of the Kardashian-Jenner clan really up-leveled their aesthetic and sort of how selective they are about what they do and how involved they are. And and so I do think that that had an effect on Skims. I mean, Kanye is even credited as being the person to like sketch out the logo of skins and he has an equity stake in the company. And I do think that his aesthetic vision, we kind of see the influence of that in both like Kim's whole personal brand aesthetic uh, over the last few years, but also in skims. And I think that that has played a big role. So it's, it's sort of like both her just doggedly mastering the art of being an influencer over the years um, and learning how to turn all kinds of publicity into further clout, but also Kanye West bringing in a stronger POV where he really, I think, exemplifies selectivity when it comes to these kinds of projects, which maybe rubbed off on her a little. I couldn't agree more. And I don't think Kanye gets enough credit. I mean, whatever, it's not super popular to celebrate anything Kanye at the moment, but at the same time, like we're talking about him coming in and right off the bat, you know, getting his stylist in to throw out three quarters of Kim's wardrobe was kind of symbolic. You know, it's because of him that they, that they made it to Vogue and that she yes, you know, exactly was, was taken seriously by the fashion industry. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, they, the Skims recently did that high profile collab with Fendi, right? All of that, like this whole universe where Kim is now accepted as a figure in the high fashion industry, like the high fashion world. I don't think that would have come at least not as easily without Kanye opening those doors. 
no, I don't think it would have come at all. And that's like a whole different conversation. I I agree with pretty much everything you're saying about them. I came at this from the other angle of you talk about pop culture and then your following wants to hear about business. I talk about business and I'm learning about all these celebrities because I didn't know that much about them before beyond just really superficial sort of sound bites. But I, now I'm learning about them and I have these, I'm developing kind of like uh, conclusions. And yesterday I shared a video on Rihanna versus Kim, only in the sense, not sort of pitting them against each other as people, but only in the sense that they are both two huge, larger than life female celebrities in the US who have $3 billion women's intimates brand. I mean, that's a, that's a pretty big coincidence, right? So I was making, I was drawing that comparison. People got really, really upset. My God. It was a whole, yeah, it was a whole thing. Oh my, well, okay. People getting upset on the internet is something. People getting upset on TikTok is especially cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs. Of course, those are things you can compare. And and also yeah. in the business world, that's what you're doing all the time. You're saying, <laughs> we want to start this business. Let's look at all the competitors. Let's do a comparison analysis. Like super normal. Yeah. Also, your opinions are the least judgmental. You're not even talking about their personal lives. Like, and yet- <laughs> They do. And I, I try so hard too. I try so hard to be neutral. And when I say nice things about Kim, because sometimes I'll be like, she's it's inspiring how many failed business ventures she has had until she got to this point. Or I'll say things like she's so hardworking or she's really good at, you know, sort of like mastering the machinery of social media. And then people will get upset because I'm giving her attention and making her out to be this role model. And then if I say, oh, she has, she's a polarizing figure, people will get upset with me. I'm just like, all right, you can't win. So I'm just going to say whatever I have to say. The same way that female CEOs are held up on this pedestal way more than men and like scrutinized so much more heavily is the same way that we as women that are being commentators on these sorts of things and even interested in the world of celebrity and pop culture which is predominantly it's the girls gays and they's that's who's interested in this type of thing people that want to do that with sports totally fine no one criticizes Mm -hmm. them like it's a totally valid pastime totally yeah that's such an interesting point I hadn't drawn that comparison between sort of like how we hold female CEOs up to higher standards but I think that's true. And, and it makes me think of how Tate was on some kind of podcast interview and she had the soundbite of women's interests are so sort of like dismissed and trivialized. Yeah. And I, I thought that was so accurate. So many things that are conventionally seen to be really girly or feminine or for women are always seen as like, quote unquote, basic, which is a supposedly a derogatory term. And, and that's very striking and, and kind of horrible. <laughs> Yeah. If you like pro football, does that mean you agree with every single thing that every football player does in their personal lives? No, but you're interested in what they're doing on the field. People don't want women to have anything fun um, (laughs) without heavily mocking us. That's what we're here to change. But I was thinking about the whole aspect of female CEOs because I was reading another article about Emily Weiss. So there's this Business Insider article that just came out heavily criticizing her. The listeners, that's the CEO of Glossier. And it was criticizing all of these aspects of the way she runs her business. And this interesting counter article that was saying, okay, sure, she's done these things. But it was talking about how she's overly nitpicky about how clean people keep their desks and little things like that. When it's like, you are taking this out of context, out of the pressure cooker that startups are, the intense boiler room that it exists in. People love to do this girl boss takedown, toxic female CEO thing. Imagine like for like to hold male CEOs up to the same scrutiny, they basically have to commit a crime for us to notice anything. 
you know? Oh my God. I, uh, okay. You are preaching everything I like to rant about. So I am, I feel so uh, vindicated right now, but I, I completely agree. I think we have this toxic fetishization of female founders only to build them up and then tear them back down because they're not fulfilling this intense sort of like fantasy of ideal sort of entrepreneur, maternal character, treats every employee perfectly under the most egregious stress, also gets less funding, but somehow has to make more of it. Um, All these different factors are sort of like complicating the situation. And it's, it's absolutely unfair, those standards we hold female founders to. And what the implications of that, the reason this matters is because it discourages other women from either being in the limelight or telling their story or, or even starting a business. I've, I talked to so many women privately who want to start a business or who are starting brands or are in generally the entrepreneurial world. And a lot of them are terrified of being seen and being the face of their brand because they don't want to be quote unquote canceled. And that's such a loss. That's, that's actually the biggest, I think, price that we pay for that is a fear because yeah, we, we love, we love a girl boss and we love a girl boss tear down and, and like, uh, you know, what happened with nasty gal. It, it is ironic that the person who kind of like popularized the term girl boss, Sophia Maruso of nasty gal actually did turn out to have an incredibly toxic business practice that kind of all fell apart from what I've read. I don't know if you have thoughts on that but like that's one tiny example and yet like the business world what do you want someone to hold your hand like it's a really cutthroat world I just recently re-watched The Devil Wears Prada and like even how Miranda Priestly like how she's like she's so mean it's like she's actually running a huge corporation she doesn't have time to like chit chat with you and like make you feel super comfortable like she's not the villain Uh, Yeah, totally. I think we expect women to be all-star CEOs and also like coddling mothers at the same time, which is not possible. (laughs) Yeah. Mothers to begin with, but you must also be in charge, CEO and being nice to everyone and, and, and it is an insane pressure. And it's unfortunate that that discourages people from getting into it. But then going back to you making these little digestible sound bites, I think that does the opposite. It makes it seem appealing and attainable. I love hearing that. That's very kind. And that that is one of my hopes is to make it feel more accessible so that anybody who's on the fence or kind of is thinking like, could that be for me? Could I follow that path? Feels more encouraged to do so. So um, yeah, I think there are different sort of tensions here. One is sort of, we're starting to see more stories of female founders. It's more part of the 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 narrative that we have. And, um, and hopefully that's encouraging. And then on the other hand, some of that narrative sort of devolves into like takedowns and and that is not good but but I do think it's all sort of like a um I I want to get to a point where it's less novel for someone to where where we don't have to say like she's a female founder she's a female CEO you know what I mean like I just want to kind of get past like let's all right if we have to like get through that phase let's do it but like let's try to speed it up so we can like have that not be a novel thing anymore our our prime minister in Canada, he gave this speech about how like the the COVID has like disproportionately affected women, but he called it a she session. And we're like, no, he's like, he's trying too hard to be like PC. And it's so, it's like so cringy. It's like, stop. Like it doesn't need to be a she session for, for CEOs. Like it just, it's just a recession or whatever. Like this is like, no one wants to hear this. Yeah. Okay, so <laughs> to go back to celebrity brands, I I don't know how 
like what um your sort of like knowledge or experience with this is but I'm interested in your thoughts on goop because it is just it's a wild world (laughs) out there yeah goop is interesting um I think there are strengths to it I think there are weaknesses that have become more glaringly evident over the last few years especially but my analysis on goop is that it's there's high authenticity there it kind of emerged organically from this newsletter that Gwyneth Paltrow was doing and sending out to her friends or whatever so I think there's that authenticity piece and then I think she also followed um kind of accidentally stumbled upon um, a model that tends to work which is starting with content and then launching into commerce which incidentally is also what um what Glossier did with Into the Gloss and then Glossier um so that model can be effective for any kind of online commerce especially so she did that and she's leveraging her own star power and her own sort of like credibility in the space of wellness to curate all these products together that being said she has a very controversial polarizing brand she sort of like um is often perceived to be kind of this uh, like in this ivory tower of you know like whatever kinds of esoteric absurdly expensive (laughs) facial treatments she gets while she's drinking like green smoothies harvested by you know tibetan monks so so she does (laughs) So that doesn't out of her water bottle with a crystal in it that costs twelve thousand dollars. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so she's also kind of self-aware of that. And for a while, she was trying to use that to generate more publicity that drove sales and brand awareness. So she was kind of trying to take a little bit of the, I would say, the Kardashian playbook of almost courting controversy because she knows that kind of publicity can be used to generate more brand awareness, which turns into conversions. Um, but I think we're now in a zeitgeist where we just have less tolerance for that kind of slightly out of touch, maybe not slightly out of touch, sort of like um, symbolism of like white privilege, basically. And and yeah. I think she exemplifies that. And I don't think people are um, finding that aspirational anymore. I think they find it kind of um, tone deaf and out of step with with the times and with the conversations that are happening. And so that's definitely hurting the brand. And so she's built this whole platform around her own personal brand. She's even named it after herself. Very unfortunate name, by the way. Goop is a tough name, but um, but she's done that. And at first I was working, but then that's, you know, it's kind of like Martha Stewart. I did a whole deep dive on Martha Stewart's empire. Um, if you build a company, an empire around your own name, then anything that happens to your personal reputation is going to affect the entire company irrevocably. So that's a really difficult business model. Okay. I want to come back to Martha Stewart in a second, but I'm just, I'm glad you're kind of confirming what I've been thinking, which is that like, she's built, I've I've thought of her as like building her brand off of trolling, like (laughs) self-aware trolling where she's like, yeah, I'm selling this like yak for like poster (laughs) you know like yeah it is eight hundred dollars so as much as I don't agree with Gwyneth Paltrow on a lot of things there's something about the audacity that I'm like (laughs) like you know what I'll give you that like I actually find that kind of impressive that you're you don't care at all you're just like yep this is completely inaccessible I'm not even trying and just when things are getting controversial I'm going to sell you this yoni egg that like, you know, all these doctors are telling you not to use. That is interesting. And that is like the Kardashian playbook or like the Kylie Jenner playbook. You know, when we were yeah. talking about defective products, I was thinking about her and all her janky products that she puts out on purpose, you know, to court controversy. Um, but yeah, it's, it's not doing it for people anymore. 
even that yeah. even that hype and that controversy all that yeah and it's also inherently a difficult business model um I don't from what I hear it's not doing that well behind the scenes as a company and they've raised a, a bit of venture capital so that places extra pressure on it so I think just even in terms of like the business model it's tricky plus you add in the fact that her brand is controversial um and increasingly less sort of like tolerated in a time where we don't like to sort of, um, you know, like idolize these bastions of white privilege. Um, I think that is, <laughs> that's also part of the difficulty is she took this um, kind of lifestyle brand that is pretty aspirational. And a lot of the products that she peddles are high price point. So it's kind of, it makes sense for what it started as, which is a newsletter for her network who can afford these things, but then she raised capital for it and tried to build sort of like a mass media company for it. And, and that doesn't quite make sense, I think. But like, I, I'm really fascinated in a question you kind of um, touched on, which is this notion that some celebrities are kind of uncancelable at this point because they've just, they're so controversial. It's almost like their brand is all about controversy. I call it the Trump effect where like, People are just so tired of being like scandalized by you that they're just like, all right, whatever. I know we totally. we don't have too much time, but I want to just quickly, you mentioned Martha Stewart. I want to go back to <laughs> how you mentioned that when you are the face of your brand, the consequence of it is that whatever you do reflects on the brand. And Martha Stewart is so fascinating because growing up, she was Miss Perfect. I mean, Martha Stewart is still synonymous for like, I'm this like kind of Stepford wife, like creepy level, like everything in place. And then she went to prison and, and for like not snitching on anyone, she, you know, she's kind of badass actually like yeah. her training, but like refusing to like say anyone's name. And, and then now she's out of it and she's back to her perfect empire, but also has this whole like weed, the whole weed stuff that she does with Snoop Dogg. <laughs> what do you think of that trajectory and like how she's kept that success going? Yeah. So I am fascinated by her because I saw this Harper's Bazaar article about her it was a profile kind of in the last few years and the headline was um it, like it was titled something like Martha Stewart is the original influencer and I was like that's so true because she st started building that sort of like media machinery around herself and then you use that to like launch all these products and brands and do all these different deals um but she that's uh, wait, that's that's just blowing my mind right now it's so no but it's so true because it's like this is what I eat in the morning. This is how I make my oatmeal. This is the soap I use. Like all those yeah. little things now that's like we take for granted that everyone tells you that, but like that didn't used to be the case for anyone. That's so yeah. interesting. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. I, I was also like, that's a really interesting kind of frame. And and I think I do agree. There's sort of, sort of like a before prison Martha Stewart and after like <laughs> there are two eras to her career. But at the same time, she's always been really good at reinventing herself and kind of like, you know, doing the next thing. And she she started as an age model and then she was a stockbroker um, at this firm, this like boutique investment firm in New York on Wall Street that ha had no other women working there. Um, and then after that, she was kind of like a stay at home mom. Then she launched a catering business, doing catering for all these like celebrities. And then she started like writing these cookbooks and that turned into like the Martha Stewart empire that we know today. But the fact that she's done all that and now she has that sort of like high profile friendship with Snoop Dogg and she has her own like CBD line or whatever. 
And, and she's always been very much at the forefront of different social media platforms as soon as they emerge. So I think she's always had this willingness to be cutting edge. But I think now, like since the prison era, she's like, okay, the jig is up. Like I can't have this sweet Stepford Wives image, but I'm still going to experiment with different fields and projects and platforms to always stay relevant. She's just the master at staying relevant. Um, almost in a very Kardashian-like way without all the like, you know, plastic surgery, I guess. And um, without but... as much controversy, like even her going to jail, like, you know, like, I mean, whatever, <laughs> I'm not endorsing insider trading, but like, as far as the things <laughs> you're going to, like, as far as things you could go to jail for, like, I don't think it's like the worst thing, but it's true. Like the way that she's sort of this fun and edgy and I smoke weed with Snoop Dogg, like that is brilliant because it's like, mm-hmm. But yet yeah. she still has her we're decorating these incredibly ornate gingerbread houses <laughs> that no one is able to like recreate. But we're gonna pretend like we're giving you the recipe or whatever. <laughs> she's a fascinating character. I don't she seems like a machine to me. She seems like some sort of like an AI. Like she's not even a real person, the way she gets everything done in a day. Well, she yeah, she seems terrifying. And she's come out like she's criticized heavily, like people like Gwyneth Paltrow are like. Um, I know I've heard her quite criticize oh, yeah. like Rachel Ray and Gwyneth Paltrow being like mm, they're just like people are like what do you think about them like uh, um, accusations that they're imitating you she's like mm, they'll never be me and like what they do is pathetic and like she'll just like <laughs> go and, like she'll just go in on people that I kind of yeah. I kind of love it it's really badass <laughs> yeah and also I didn't know this until recently but she was the first female self-made billionaire in the U.S. which is pretty crazy when wow. her company went public in the 90s and actually self-made because that gets thrown around the whole self-made of it all like calling Kylie Jenner a self-made person I think that was just for headlines right like what do you I I guess so I think they're trying to spin back to the glamorization of entrepreneurship I think they were trying to kind of like slot their various family members into this narrative of like successful badass girl boss whatever um and, and it kind of fell flat because the stuff about Kylie's business came out where they kind of frauded their like partners or whatever. So I think they were kind of going for that angle and, and it it was really tone deaf. And here's the other thing though. I think that on the one hand, they are masters of publicity and PR and social media. And on the other hand, they do these obviously tone deaf things like the Kendall and Pepsi commercial or Mm -hmm. like Kylie and Kendall supposedly wrote this like sci-fi novel like, like I love bizarre. I love their novel that they wrote that they authored together <laughs> they co-authored an American classic and, <laughs> and I just like those are moments where I'm like they are so oddly tone deaf sometimes they're so out of touch with like real people that they like try as they might they can't like gauge what would make sense and what wouldn't so they're just kind of like making all these missteps and then when something blows up they try to like announce a new pregnancy to like distract you away from it you know yeah part of me wonders if those missteps are so egregious that they're somewhat planned like I don't know if Kris Jenner is quite evil enough to like throw her daughter into the fire of that whole like Pepsi controversy yet at the same time I don't I wouldn't put it past her <laughs> came out recently that, that they said Chris Jenner does all their negotiating for them. And like, so she speaking of like someone who's a machine and who never sleeps, like she is really calling all the shots. And for all their scandals, we talked about the Pepsi commercial and we will still be talking about it. It is truly such an iconic and like universally hated moment but it has us talking and ultimately then all eyes were on 808 like her tequila brand and that also had controversy but yet we're talking about it and and buying it I don't know how well it's doing but it seems to be okay yeah what's what's striking to me is 
we can have as many conjectures as we want about this, but the profound paradox of the Kardashian empire is that simultaneously they share more about their personal lives than any other family on the planet. And we also don't know the real story at all. We don't know how these decisions get made. We don't know how the negotiations work. We don't even know if the Pepsi thing was real or like intended or not. You know what I mean? There are these big gaps in our understanding about what actually happens behind the scenes, even though they pretend to show us sort of like this unfiltered peek into their every like waking lives. Um, And I think that paradox is just such a, like a feat, you know, that in itself is impressive. It's incredible theatrics. Well, like part of what makes me wonder if things like the Pepsi commercial were done on purpose is because they will to our faces say, when, when people ask if they've had plastic surgery, we work really hard. We go to the gym, we wake up at 6am. Like they will say that with a straight face. Oh, well, Chloe had one nose job. That's it. Like, am I'm scared of you guys. <laughs> and, and they will just say that to our faces when it's like your hips just changed back <laughs> because you're now dating white people. Like, you know, it's like <laughs> you, you took your, you all took your BBLs out on the same month. Like the, the, they'll do that in public and then say, that. so I think that that is, it's, it's kind of sick, but it's part of it. I wonder. Yeah. I think. <laughs> Yeah. And what does that say about how easily duped we are? Like how short our attention spans are? I feel like that's not, you know, that's like a little foreboding because I do think that they've learned to do this because they know they can get away with it. Because like one example I think about is people are always like, oh, Kendall is so beautiful. She's the natural one. I'm like, she's not natural. Do you have any idea what she used to look like? It's not that. (laughs) Yeah. Like, yeah. Kendall has had plastic surgery done in such a way that makes her look like the natural one but they've chosen different faces for all of them and they've all like they all like they, they like debut new faces all the time I mean she's basically it it is that we're easily duped and yet I mean I'm entertained watching the theatrics but yeah I don't know I don't yeah. know how much people are digesting it like ironically or non-ironically I, I don't yeah. know yeah I think the line there is blurred and that is interesting it's like you know when we're watching reality tv we I think people sort of feel like, like, I think there's a kind of a, a mentality of, oh, it's entertaining to watch this because they are so extreme and such caricatures of real people and their their decision-making is so poor, but actually the very sort of like relation we have to those characters where we feel superior, like that I think is like the actual punchline and that's like the interesting part of it. And so what's, what like, are we, are we observing or are we like participating in the chaos? Oh yeah. It's pure Sean Freud. It is that whole back and forth of what's real, what's not that gets us interested and gets us selling. Dalma, I know you have to run. Tell everyone where they can find you if you're not yeah, following so already. I am on TikTok at I am Dalma, D-U-L-M-A. And that's also my handle on Instagram. All right. Well, Thank you so much for your time. And yeah, I'll see you on today. TikTok. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I'll <laughs> see you on the small screen. Bye, right. everyone. Bye. Bye. Bye.